I'd just like to uh, also acknowledge the, the many prayers that have been out. Uh, it's been quite a few weeks that Daryl uh, in the back there has not been able to be with us, and so we're just grateful uh, for him being able to make it here uh, for this and celebrating the first week of Advent. So um, just the way we've been praying for him for quite some time, and yet God in his faithfulness has brought him here for us for this Sunday. So that being said, before we begin, though, I want to ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Dearly Father, thank you that you are the God who saves. As we sang for the desire for this long-expected one to come, thank you that we know that you came. And that long-expected one came and fulfilled all the promises, all the prophecies, and came and redeemed. This is a busy time of year for many. This is a time of year with many mixed emotions, and it reminds ourselves of uh, those who maybe were here with us last year that are not. It also exposes sometimes rifts in families as why this person is here and why this person is not. It causes us to examine our own heart. So, dearly Father, in a time of mixed emotions, help us to see where hope is, and where hope can be found. Give us wisdom now, in your name we pray. Amen. Several weeks ago, uh, my daughter and I, uh, Catherine, were actually going through uh, Fleet Farm there where they have all of those uh, village things that are set up, and uh, we were mulling over, you know, should we get one or not, and they had this little countdown thing to East to uh, Christmas so you can take the little numbers and, you know, start counting down the days. And so we had this great debate. Should you give it to, because she was giving it to my son Tim for Christmas, should you give it to him as soon as you get home? Because you can, by just maneuvering the numbers, count down from really high up anyway, all the way down through it. When can you give it to him? And then we have the great debate in our own home of when does Christmas actually start? Is it, you know, is it when the radio stations start playing Christmas music or all of that great debate that goes on? And I told her, I said, you can't give it to her until after Thanksgiving. And so obviously on week out home at Thanksgiving, she's like, I can't wait. Finally, I gave it to him. And so in the Yorgi household, the countdown to Christmas has begun. But it's interesting, in this long-awaited time that is here, there's an irony that we live in in the United States at this moment, where the world is, in a way, America is celebrating Christmas, but they've got to ignore the whole point of Christmas. So we've got to celebrate it and ignore it at the same time, and so we don't really know what to do. And so every year I enjoy watching the world try to celebrate something without celebrating it, because if they were to celebrate it, they'd have to admit what they're celebrating, and so we're just going to do this weird whatever we get into the American culture. But for those of us who know Christ, for those of us who are men and women of the Word, we anticipate Christmas. We've been anticipating it all year, but it's more than just gifts, it's more than just making memories. We're anticipating something that is going to remind us about something else, that's going to remind us about something else, and it just keeps going on and on and on in the Christian world, because we're anticipating. That's what the word Advent means, to anticipate. And that's why this year especially, and the years to come, we're going to be lighting these candles, these candles reminding us of the anticipation of something that is going to come. And as we think about the anticipation of hope today, 
there's going to be two questions that I want to grapple with. Two questions that if we, I really do believe as we have a church and we as followers of God in this room here, if we truly understand the answers to these two questions would cause us to celebrate even with greater enthusiasm the anticipation of Christmas. The first question is, what happened to the human race that the Son of God would come down to deliver? What happened? Why did the triune God, why did God the Father send His Son to redeem? What was going on there? Because if we don't understand that, we don't get anything of this anticipation. And then second of all, why is the first Advent candle pointing us to Christ? Why is it hope? Out of all the other Advent candles here and what they symbolize, why hope? Why this above love? Why this above peace? Why this above joy? Why? Why is it hope? I hope you will find the answer to this. I'm going to answer that basically in the rest of the sermon, so you're not going to get an exact answer other than literally the next until I get done talking time period. The title of the sermon today is Christ is Our Hope. And we're going to see that in Genesis chapter 3. But before we get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, there are chapters 1 and 2 that go before this. All right? And so what I'm going to do, we're not going to read them all. I'm going to summarize to give us a reminder of these things. Because most of you have sat through, and hopefully if any of you have ever tried to read the Bible through the year, you've made it past verse chapter 3 of Genesis. Usually you get stuck in Leviticus and Numbers and that type of thing, and then you just go, I'll try next year. But most of us have probably been at least introduced to this passage, but I want to spend some time thinking through what really happened. So we need to take ourselves back to the very beginning. In the beginning, where there was nothing but God Himself in complete harmony in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in complete harmony with one another, self-sufficient, in need of nothing. They were not bored why they created, but God created. And when He created, He looked down on what He created. He looked down on the world around Him, and He looked and He said, this is not just good, but very good. This is the way it ought to be. And after speaking everything into existence by literally the power of His voice, I mean, think about that for a moment. There was nothing God spoke and there was something. Literally by the power of the Almighty's voice. And He's doing this day after day after day, and then He comes to that day. And He pauses from His natural way of creating things. He does not speak man into existence. In a way, if you could say it, as a body, Christ kneels down, I mean, God kneels down, He takes dirt, He takes clay, and He forms this clay into His image, as an image bearer. And not only that, He does not speak then life into it, He literally, if you want to take it in so many poetic ways, brings it close to Himself and literally breathes into this lump of dirt the breath of life. Totally different than any other thing that he has created. Everything else, it was, let it be, let it be, let it be. And now all of a sudden, he pauses. And in that pause, we see him creating male and female in his own image. And what does he do with this? If you want to call it the jewel of his creation. The image bearer of his creation. He places them in a garden. 
in a beautiful place that was literally overflowing with food, all the food they ever needed. He places them in this garden for them to enjoy, for man to take care of. And what they were called to do from that base there of this beautiful place was to fill the earth with image bearers of God. Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with God. Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with each other. In the cool of the evening, they would come and they would fellowship with God. Think about that for a moment. I don't know what they talked about. The Bible does not record it. But the conversations with God... His own image bearers responding back to him. I don't know if they sang songs to praise together, what they did, but that beautiful cool of the evening as they would sit there and commune with God, nothing between them but the beautiful fellowship of God. Adam and Eve, even then, were given the whole world for them to enjoy, the whole world for them to explore. And yet, in the midst of these commands, and you think about there was one, you can do all of these, but don't do this one thing. You had all of the trees of the garden. You had everything given to you. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it, bring forth in abundance, bring more image bearers of me into this world to glorify me and to glorify God. And they were given one command. You can eat of everything else, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day you eat of it, you will die. Then one day, the darkest day in human history, Adam and Eve rebelled against their Creator. And they chose sin, and the earth was plunged into darkness. Point number one we're going to see is the hopelessness of sin. Genesis chapter 3 here, verse 1. Now the serpent was more craftier than any of the other beasts of the field the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, I love how the, the serpent uses the same playbook that he's been playing for all of eternity. And he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? Can God be trusted on his word? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees, the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired more to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with me has given me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, Is that what you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed 
Are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring, sorry, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you and To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of you you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Very interesting here the hopelessness of sin. The moment that Adam and Eve knew that they had sinned, what do they do? They try to, if you want to call it, put a band-aid over a a seeping wound and they try to cover things up and then when they're asked directly, did you do this? It's past the buck down the line all the way to until we finally get God here now explaining to them what is going to take place. Because you have rebelled against Almighty, He gave you one command, command not to eat, and what did you do? You ate. He says to the man, I'm going to work backwards here, He says to the man, this work that I called you to do to enjoy in the garden, this work that was to be something that you loved to do, you were commanded to do, this fruitfulness that was given, now work is still what you're going to do, but it's going to be hard. And this work literally will kill you. By the sweat of your brow is what's going to have this thing. Thorns and thistles will be here. Disease and all these other things. Just making food for yourself is going to be difficult. And it literally will break you down and kill you. And you will go right back to where you came from. Dust to dust. Then he says to the woman, You were the one that was to bring about literally the mother of all living. That's her name, Eve, is what it means. You are literally going to be the one that brings about the fruitfulness of this world. In the command to be fruitful and multiply, you literally were were the one that were to be creating new life from what the man has given you. And this is supposed to be a joy and a wonderful thing. Now you will still do that, but there will be great pain and sorrow in this thing that was supposed to be joy for you. And not only that, we see this in the last part of Eve's talking to of the Lord, that you're going to see the relationship conflict between a man and woman there. Your desire shall be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now, now even in the marriage relationship, there's going to be massive difficulties. And not only that, Paul in Romans 5.12, if you want to turn there quick, and if I beat you there, just listen. Romans 5.12 It's like a sword drill here. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And what did that sin do? Death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. And because of you being part of Adam's race, what had happened? Death has spread to you all. Man removed from the garden. All seems lost here. There's literally placed in the mouth of the garden a cherubim with a flaming sword. You cannot get back into this garden. 
This garden, in a way, is going to be just a symbol of a, of a temple, of a tabernacle where man could be with God. And what do we see in front of it? No, you are not allowed back in because of sin. Fellowship with God is broken. Sickness, disease, and death are all around us. And Adam and Eve get to see this literally firsthand. In chapter 4, what do we see? Both of them, I'm sure without a doubt, are thinking that what is going to happen here? How are we going to see these consequences play out? And what do they see? They're two boys out of anger because of sin, because of the evil that is there. And literally, Cain is told, be careful. Sin is crouching at your, the heart of your, the, literally the door of your heart. Be careful. You must master it. But sin took him over. And what do we see? Him killing his brother out of anger. I am sure without a doubt, I don't know if Adam and Eve buried them or not, but I am sure without a doubt as they looked at their son Abel, they're dead. I'm sure without a doubt the consequences of their sin are right in front of them. The Bible doesn't tell us how they responded to it, but we, I'm sure without a doubt if they were at all like any of us, there would be crying, there'd be sorrow from that. Literally getting to see what that one act of rebellion, and it's not one small act, it's one huge act of cosmic treason against Almighty God that they would take a direct command of God and say, we know better. So the question goes is, when will all of these things be made right? Point number two, we're going to see the promise of a deliverer. Now, in order to have hope, there must be a contrast. In order to have hope, you must have hopelessness and something to hope in. All right? And so, in order to have hope, you must have dark to light concept. And in the middle of this judgment, in the middle of when God is pouring out His judgment on the serpent and on the woman and on man, what we see here is literally a beacon of hope. And as you're reading your Bibles, there should be a pause here because on this promise and this promise alone is what literally the rest of the text of Scripture is going to build off of. We see it in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, meaning the serpent, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. The promise is that one day there will come an offspring of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. Notice where we see this here. He, meaning this offspring of the woman, is going to come and crush the head or bruise the head and you will bruise his heel. This idea of that crushing is a death blow to the serpent that is going to come about. And so the question then for Eve is, who is this offspring of mine that is going to come and is going to then crush the serpent's head. A death blow, yet his heel will be crushed. This is where we see, and one of the things when, by God's grace, when we finally get through Genesis, we're going to see this idea of salvation through judgment all throughout Scripture. That in the middle of judgment, what do we see? I'm, not, I'm going to argue it's not just a little glimmer of hope. It's like a beacon screaming, there is hope. Because... I'm going to argue the Bible speaks in this way. Now we're going to see the story unfold. Which each birth of a boy, the question is going to be, will he be their deliverer? And the answer is going to come, no. With every birth of a girl, will she be the one that will bring the deliverer in? This is why descendants and genealogies are really big. All right, because what are we looking for? An offspring that is going to deliver. And so what we see 
is it very interesting, the moment this gets done here, in chapter 322, we're going to see very quick, actually, verse 4 here, you're, uh, chapter 4, I'll get there. Chapter 4, immediately what we see, offspring. Adam and Eve have offspring, and they have male offspring. Is it going to be Abel? Well, we find out real quick, no, because he's dead. Is it going to be Cain? No, because he's killed Abel, right? This is not the offspring. And then it moves on, and we find out later on that it's through the line of Seth that it's going to come. And as you start to see this, well, all right, so what does that mean? It's through the line of Seth. And so you start to see the descendants of Seth, and you start to see the descendants of Cain moving further and further away from God. But this line, this line, this promised line that is coming through, and then all of a sudden the world is getting to the point where it's just so evil, so terrible, that we're looking for this offspring that's going to come, and it has gotten so bad that there's only one family, namely one man, Noah, that is righteous. And is Noah going to be that deliverer? Is Noah the one? Well, we find out by reading Noah's life, no, he is not the one. Then we wonder after that, is it Shem? Who's it going to be? Which one of Noah's sons? And then all of a sudden, we, God calls a literally a pagan who's living in the city of Ur, who's not following after God. He says, Abraham, come, and I'm going to show you where you're going to go. And all of a sudden, he starts talking to Abraham about a promised place and a promised land and how through you, the nations are going to be blessed. And this sounds very similar to one day, an offspring is going to take care of this. And is it Abraham? Well, God tells him, no, it's not you, Abraham. It's going to be one of your descendants. And Abraham goes, that is fine and exciting, but there's a problem here. I'm almost dead, and my wife, who's just about as dead as me, has never had a kid. I love how the Bible talks about Abraham. When he's about as good as dead, he had this kid. All right? The reason why is that to say God can do the miraculous. Because God had promised you're going to have an offspring, and the offspring is coming through Abraham's line. And so when that offspring comes, which is Isaac, everybody goes, is this the one? But what we see here is a beautiful picture. Isaac, Abraham's one and only son, Think about that, Genesis, uh, John 3.16. Abraham's one and only son, what does God say to him? Go offer him as a sacrifice. And in a type that is yet to be fulfilled, what does Isaac do? He takes the wood on his own shoulders, carries it up there, and what do we find? The sacrifice. Is it Isaac as a sacrifice? No. There's a better sacrifice. There's a substitute that is coming and we long for that substitute. Who's that substitute going to be? We don't know yet. And the story continues to unfold. And then as this group of people that are all looking for this offspring comes about, they get thrown into slavery in Egypt, and things seem to be about as bad as they can be. And in the lowest point there, God says, Moses, I'm going to bring you, pick you, not because of anything good in you. You're a stuttering fool, and I'm going to use you as the mouthpiece to bring my people out of slavery, out of bondage, into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. You hear the Eden terms there. Moses is going to bring them back. But what is Moses pointing to? Because Moses couldn't even enter the promised land because of his own sin. So we need a better Moses. This is what Hebrews is all about. We need Christ is better then. And so all of this longing that's going on, but in the beautiful picture here, 
when Moses is leading the Israelite people out and out of slavery, God in his gracious love for the Israelite people and for the people of God, give us his law. And out of the love of God, he says, here's how a people that are set apart for God will live. And you know what the law showed them? We're in a heap of trouble because we can't keep this law. And not only did we see the moral law, but what we got was a sacrificial system. That on the Day of Atonement, that God had told Israel that you can come into my presence, but only through the shedding of blood and only through one person, exactly how I told you, you can kind of get back to the garden, but yet not there, because we're longing for the day that one day, the perfect sacrifice will be offered. Because even though the lamb had to be spotless, the lamb only covered sin for that time period, and we had to do it the next year, and the next year, over and over and over and over again, until one day, as we open up our New Testament, we hear John the Baptist standing on the Jordan River, and what does he cry out? Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, whoa, wait a minute. That was not missed by the people who were reading their Bible at that time. I mean, you think about when Jesus even came into the temple, how the people who had been studying their Bible longed and they saw the Messiah that was there. The long-appointed one was there. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And He did not come in riding His white steed, just going to destroy all mankind. He came in like the Bible had told us. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As the song reminds us, He was a man of sorrows. Interesting how the song goes. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. There is the hope. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Again, Adam and Eve could be singing this, guilty, vile, and helpless we. But as John tell us, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, not a partial, not a, I hope you do something with us, but full atonement. How can it be, the song would say. And the answer is, hallelujah, what a Savior. Because of this great Savior, we have hope. And Peter, who is writing a long time ago, you can go to 1 Peter, your Bibles are probably flopped to that anyway. 1 Peter 1, 3, as he is writing to a group of exiled sojourner people who the world is pounding down on them, what does he say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, according to this great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, kept in heaven for you. Notice this. The inheritance that Adam and Eve were given was defiled because of their own sin. But because of Christ, we have hope. And now I want to spend some time, I know we're already at point three here, the hope of life. What does it mean to live a life of hope? Hope is an eager, confident expectation. An eager, confident expectation. Remember we started off in our call to worship, and, and Isaiah, as he's writing this, is telling you, how do we know these things are going to be? And the answer was, because God has spoken it. 
All right, that's all you need. God said it. And this is what means it will take place. So all of the promises that God had promised are yes and amen in Christ. When we think about hope, notice how Peter even calls it a living hope. I would even say it's even far more than just a living. I would call it a lively hope. Unlike the empty tomb. Unlike the empty dead hope. Unlike the tomb that is, that is sealed and that there's, we go and we visit these, these cemeteries where there is no hope of seeing them again here on this earth. For those of us who saved, what do we do now? One day we will see them again for those of us who know Christ. Unlike the empty dead hope that the world has to offer, we, because of Christ, have a living hope, energizing, alive, and it is active in the soul of the believer. And I want to take a moment here and pause because this is what the hope was all about, that one day an offspring of Eve and Adam will come and crush the serpent's head yet his heel will be bruised, and we see that in Jesus Christ himself. He came to fulfill that, and that is what we are hoping for. As we see the plan of redemption being played out, pointing us to Christ, our hope should build, the anticipation should build, because before John the Baptist stands on the Jordan and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, what we had was 400 years of silence, 400 years of people living and dying, people living and dying and longing for that day to come and hearing nothing but silence. Many, I think it was about two years ago, and we were going through a backache, we were talking about silence, and I just stood up here one time for 30 seconds and stared at you, all right, and you stared at me and how awkward that was. Imagine 400 years of silence and all you had were the promises of the Old Testament pointing to one day this is going to happen, but will it happen? This is where in Peter, as we read through this, the prophets longed and they were eager to look into this. And we sit on the other side and see it and the prophets would say, oh, if I could only live in your time, I could see these things being played out. And most of us go, well, if I lived back in Bible times, I'd have no problem with faith. And these people are going, you have the whole thing revealed to you. But yet every Christmas, because we are so bought into all of these other things, we enter it into so much materialism and so much just junk that destroys our anticipation and our hope. And so these things just come and go, and there is no buildup, there is no excitement of it, because, oh, I heard that already, right? I already know how it ends. And I would say to you, then you should have hope because you get to see it all and you know that if these things are true, what will come will even be true because we see what he said he has done. So then the, the question then is, this is the only hope that there is in life and death is Christ alone. So when Christmas comes around and it reminds you of a broken relationship, it reminds you of maybe loved ones that you haven't talked to all year for a reason. All right, and your question is, what's going to solve that? It's not you. I want to be real clear. You will not be able to call them and say the exact right thing that's going to all of a sudden they go, oh, you're right. I was wrong. You know, how can we ever make amends? What you're going to find is the only hope that they will have is Christ and Christ alone. So you go to him in prayer and you pray that God would open their eyes to see their need of a Savior, and you would also pray that God would open your eyes to see the areas that you need to confess as well. What about for that broken and rebellious heart? What is the answer for that? 
not for you to explain to them when you see them over the holidays about how wrong they are. It's the hope of Christ. The only thing that will break the rebellious heart is the hope of Christ found in the gospel. For those of you who during this time that the clouds of sadness and depression come in, the only answer to that is the hope of Christ. Because for those of us who know Christ, this should be a time where all of those things are put away because we realize that you can't look to me for anything. I can only point you to Him and Him alone. Hope is found in Him and Him alone. This is one reason why Christmas is so hard for many people. For the unsaved world, one of the reasons why it is so hard is because it reminds them that there's a bigger picture other than themselves and they don't want to admit it. And so what we do is we try to push it away because when other people are being happy, I don't want to be happy. I'd rather be miserable because all I care about myself and the selfishness that Christmas exposes in our own hearts, where for the believer we would say, it's Christ and Christ alone that I have hope. Because this is a battle in our world right now. The battle in our world right now is we're going to look for hope in so many things other than the only place that hope is, which is Christ. Because without that hope in the garden, we have no hope. We will die in our sins without Christ. And so we, as believers, are able to stand boldly and look into the world, not just with a, I hope, as in a pie in the sky, I hope this is going to happen, with the certainty of a living hope. And here's how we see it. We see it in the past, we see it in the present, and we see it in the future. How we see the living hope in the past, we see it as what we just read in Genesis 3.15. That promise that one day, and from Eve and Adam, this offspring is going to come, and is going to destroy the works of the devil, and is going to bring about salvation. We see that, and the promises and the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus in His life, and His death, and His resurrection. And that is our hope that is anchored in the past. That just like he said it was going to happen, it will today. We also see it in our present. We see it because Jesus is alive because of the resurrection. That's why I, I've said to you over and over and over and over again, Christmas just gets the party started. It's all about Easter. All right, because Christmas just says he came, Easter says he redeemed, and everything he said is yes and amen, and we celebrate it from there. All right, without the cross and the empty tomb, you just have the Son of God here on earth. That's great. Wonderful. But He came to do something. He came to redeem. And so we get excited about the baby in the manger, but we know that the rest of the story is yet to come. And because of the past, because of the present, we know in the future that what He promised that promise of eternal life and resurrection life is there. Why? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, He is the first fruits of all of us who will die and will rise again. That is why the resurrection is so exciting, because Jesus rose, that means what He promised, He is able to complete, because death has been destroyed, and the hope is that one day when we die, we will stand before Him, not closed in our own righteousness, but in His and His alone. And that's why we look to Him for hope. And because of that hope, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Because of that hope, 
Paul can pen these words here. So we do not lose heart. Though our inner nature is wasting, though our outer nature is wasting our way, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Paul is saying, listen, here's why we don't lose hope. Even though if you look at your outward life and you see all around you, all you're going to see it is it wasting away. And most of us, one of the reasons why I would argue that as we get older, there's a tendency, I'm not going to make a broad brush, there's a tendency to get grumpy. And one of the reasons we get grumpy is because we had a lot of hope in ourselves. And so now all of a sudden I can't lift the things I used to live. There's much more of me than there was before. And all of these things that we don't like about ourselves that we used to be able to do, now we can't. And all of a sudden we go, well, wait a minute. I can't just by tooth and nail drive these things through. I have to realize that there's a limit to my strength. And all of a sudden, like, I need help, and I also need to realize my hope is not in me. My hope must be in Him and Him alone. Verse 17, speaking of this world, for this slight momentary affliction. I love how Paul speaks of this world. This slight momentary affliction. What is all these slight momentary struggles preparing us for? The eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so, when we see these things here, Paul is saying when you weigh them on the scale, even though you may be struggling with lost family relationships, with marriages that stink, with cancer diagnosis, and you can just fill in the blank, what does Paul say? These are but light momentary afflictions for that hope that is going to come. And what is that hope? That eternal weight of glory. And yes, our hearts break. We are not a group of people that just go whistling through and when bad things happen, we never shed a tear. We need to learn how to weep with those who weep. We need to learn how to mourn with those who mourn. But we do not mourn as those who have no hope. That is why we can read one of my favorite passages of Scripture in Lamentations is literally it's a book on lamenting. If you've ever had a lament, that's just a really long, nice way of saying all it's doing is one cry of sorrow after another, after another, after another. And literally as Jeremiah is writing this, you're supposed to smell the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Right, you're supposed to smell, which we don't smell in our own days, like the smell of burning flesh, the cry of a, of a lost parent, the cry of kids who are being taken away out of their families, and all of these things that are going on, you're supposed to, right in the middle of lamentations, if the verse is penned, the mercies of God are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That just like He was faithful to come and tell Israel, you will be punished for the sin you are doing, I am faithful to also say, when you are punished, I will bring you back. We need to understand that. That's where our hope is. Yes, we will see, whether it's in my lifetime or, or not, we will see the destruction of our lives around us in one way or the other. We are in a battle for the mind in our country. But our hope is not in a politician who can argue that my hope is in Christ and Christ alone. He goes on to say, as we look not at the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal because our hope is in Him and Him alone. So when we think about what did we learn today? 
The first candle of hope that we light is because that is a reminder of the hope that was given to us in the garden. That one day, that though the wrong may seem also strong, that God is the ruler yet. And as every Sunday you come back and you'll see this lit, and then as the weeks go on, I want you to remind yourselves again, why did we do hope? Because without hope, which literally is Christ, we have nothing. And the, the prayer is, as we walk through this, as we can't wait for that day, which we actually, by God's grace, get to celebrate on the Lord's Day, Sunday, that day where we celebrate hope has come, love has come, peace has come, joy has come, as we light that middle candle, we have to then say, since He has come, what are we to do about it? How do we respond? And our lives should be, and I already spill the answer, this is what Paul says in Romans 12, to present our bodies as living sacrifice, wholly acceptable before the Lord which is your reasonable service, which he basically says is what you should do when you understand it all. It's, here I am. Because you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. What do you do then? Glorify God in everything I do. So, Christ is our hope. I would even say that there is no hope outside of Christ, so Christ is hope by very definition. So when we look at this candle, kids, as you... Come in and you see that every time you look at this candle, may, may you remember that anticipation that all of those in the Old Testament long to see. That by God's grace, you get to see and get to understand and know that literally we beheld the face of God in Jesus Christ and we saw hope. Parents, I encourage you, the Advent season, technically the counting down to Christmas, has technically not started yet, even though it started in the Yorgi household, like if you're an Advent calendar people and you open up stuff. I'd encourage you, whether you have kids or not, you need to do something, some spiritual practice or exercise to get you looking forward to that hope. So I'm not going to tell you what we do, because then all of a sudden you, all of you legalists will say, well, that's what the Yorgis are doing, and so we must do the exact same thing in order to be a good family. All right, you have an imagination. Think of something. Don't let these seasons go by without pointing your kids to Christ and Christ alone through this time. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you that you are the hope of this world. As we opened up the service with come thou long expected, you were born to set your people free. So dearly Father, thank you for that great salvation. May we never, may we never have a Christmas season where our hearts and our minds are not turned towards you and you alone. May we work hard as a church to push aside all of these things that so easily distract us from that glorious hope. Satan would love to, to do no more than to destroy that hope that we have for the season in our own lives. And so, dearly Father, as Peter reminds us to take all of our anxiety and our cares and cast it on you because you do care for us. And so we can live in hope because our hope is not in ourselves. May we fight for hope in our lives each day. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen.